This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, genomics revealed the origin of some mysterious mummies. How to keep up your digital hygiene. And what to expect at the UN's latest climate conference. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Shamini Bundell. is 1934, and explorers are crossing the inhospitable Taklamakan Desert in Central Asia. In a region known as the Tarim Basin, they come across an unusual sight. What appear to be great oars pierce the sky, and amidst them lie boats. Or so it appears. They weren't just boats, they were coffins. So we have these naturally mummified individuals that are exquisitely preserved. And in having this amazing preservation, we get this window into this period in the past, the Bronze Age, so around 4,000 years ago. This is Paula Dupree, an archaeologist of inner Asian prehistory. The individuals found are known as the Tarim Basin mummies. For 66 years, they remained forgotten. But in the early 2000s, archaeologists rediscovered and re-examined the site, revealing many other unusual aspects of the mummies. So generally the mummies are described as having Western physical appearance. So they were quite tall, fair-skinned, fair hair, long noses. So all these things we associate with West Eurasia and not Asiatic populations. And so from early on, the question was, where did they come from? Seemingly European people mummified in a desert right in the heart of Asia. The Tarim Basin mummies have puzzled archaeologists for decades. Although they appeared to have a so-called Western appearance, 
Their diet had traces of both East and West. And this is one of the, the really unique aspects of this region is that they're growing crops that originate both in Southwest Asia as well as in Central China. So you get this kind of crossover of Eastern and Western domesticates. Most hypotheses about the Tarim mummy's origin centre around migration from somewhere to the north or west. Particular attention has been paid to a people known as the Fanasevo from the Eurasian steppe, modern-day southern Siberia. This has been particularly compelling as, like the Tarim Basin mummies, they kept goats, sheep and cattle, and they shared the so-called western physical appearance. Also, evidence has been found in the Tarim Basin, albeit much later than the mummies were around, of the Tukarian language, a now extinct tongue that is thought to be closely related to European languages, possibly spread by the Afanasievo. Now scientists are turning to biology for answers. After all, where there is migration of people, there are genes. If this migration from a certain proposed source really contributed to Tarim mummy's gene pool, then we should be able to find it. This is Shang Wunjong, an evolutionary geneticist who has been delving into the genomes of the Tarim mummies. Now, previous genetic studies have relied on mitochondrial and Y-chromosome DNA, and indeed have found genes associated with both East and West. But Chongwon says these studies lack the resolution that could be offered by genomic DNA. By comparison, Chongwon's study sequenced genomic DNA from 13 Tarim Basin mummies. He compared these with DNA from a different set of mummies that were slightly older and from further north. Chongwon's analysis suggested that the older, more northerly mummies' genomes supported the theory of a Fanasievo migration. And it's pretty clear that they have a large fraction of their genome descended from an Afanasievo gene pool. But for the Tarim mummies... I was really surprised. The Tarim mummies, well, they were quite unique. Basically, they have zero contribution from the Afanasievo herders. Chongwon found no evidence of Afanasievo genes in the Tarim Basin mummies. But that isn't all. His data didn't support any of the leading hypotheses for the origin of the Tarim Basin mummies. Instead, they appear to be a remnant of a group of ancient North Eurasians, a thought-to-be nomadic population that was once widespread across Northern Europe and Asia. This group's genetic legacy has been found throughout Europe and even the Americas. They are also suggested to be the first people to develop blonde hair, which fits in with the appearance of the Tarim Basin mummies. But the lack of a Fanasievo gene suggests that the Tarim mummies remain genetically isolated from their neighbours. And yet, there's lots of archaeological evidence to suggest that they were culturally very similar to a Fanasievo and other peoples around them. In contrast to this clear genetic separation, we see the very strong cultural connection with other groups. So basically, they, they were not like isolated, isolated. They knew what was happening in the nearby regions, and then they actually imported and got all these animals and plants and, and how to grow and cultivate these animals and plants. Cultural mixing does not, it seems, always lead to, well, mixing of genes. I think that we need to not assume that when you get a new cultural practice or a new tradition, that it means that people moved and brought their ideas with them, and then local people adopted them. Now we have to think about how this may have happened. So potentially down the line exchange, so from one hand to another, or 
non-regular interactions where you get people coming together for certain events. So ritual moments of the year where people gather, congregate, share ideas and then go their own separate ways. This is not unprecedented. In a previous study in Mongolia, Chongwon found people adopted cultural practices from elsewhere with little movement of genes. For these unusual people who buried their dead in boats in the middle of the desert, the Tarim Basin mummies, there are still many mysteries to unpick. One of the big questions is what's happening before 2100 BC? So you have this third millennium. The third millennium has a big question mark on it. What was there before the Tarim Basin mummies are living there? Is there a hunter-gatherer population that we haven't picked up? Is there other populations just outside the basin from the early third millennium that can help us make this connection as to how this culture emerges? What are its cultural origins? And so it's really finding those earlier sites that are going to be really crucial going forward. That was Paula Dupree from Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. You also heard from Chung Wun Zhong from Seoul National University in South Korea. To find out more about the genetics of the Terran Basin mummies, check out the paper, along with a News and Views article written by Paula, in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about some unscrupulous publication practices and how you can help protect yourself. Right now, though, it's the Research Highlights with Dan Fox. As a material, wood has a lot of things going for it, but it isn't very easy to shape. Now a team of researchers have found a way to make wood mouldable. The researchers first removed more than half of wood's stiff and water-repelling components, leaving behind the softer cellulose. Then they allowed the wood to dry, causing the hollow cellulose fibres to collapse. When this dried wood was dipped in water, the cellulose-rich regions quickly rehydrated, allowing the wood to be moulded or folded into various shapes that then set when the wood dried again. A 3D wooden lattice produced with this process and sandwiched between two sheets of aluminium was strong enough to support a car. The authors hope that their process could help wood, a renewable resource, to compete for roles conventionally filled by plastics and metals. Branch out and read that research in science. 66 million years ago, a devastating mass extinction wiped out roughly 75% of all Earth species, including the dinosaurs. But snakes survived and thrived after developing a taste for a bountiful array of creatures. To find out more about the reptiles' dietary shifts, researchers compiled data from dissections of museum specimens' gut contents and field observations of 882 modern snake species. The authors merged those data with information about the evolutionary history of snakes. Their results suggest that the most recent common ancestor of living snakes dined exclusively on insects and other invertebrates, 
but shortly after the mass extinction, snakes developed the striking variety of dietary preferences that they have today. Devour that research in PLOS Biology. Guillaume Cavanac is a computer scientist from the University of Toulouse in France, and this week in Nature he's written a worldview looking at a very particular unscrupulous academic practice, attaching a researcher's name to something without them knowing. This practice can have serious career and reputational repercussions, especially in a world where predatory journals and things like fake conferences and editorial boards exist. But Guillaume is fighting back and is calling on researchers to do what he calls a digital hygiene check every month to protect themselves from practices like this. Benjamin Thompson gave him a call to find out more and started by asking him why someone might get unknowingly added as an author. There are some cases when authors put other peoples in the byline for increasing the perceived prestige of the submission. In some cases, we can find the names of researchers being acknowledged in the acknowledgement sections of the papers. And when you go and ask the, the people what did they contribute, sometimes they say, I don't really know. I don't even know the the researchers who acknowledge me. Why is this a problem then if your name is attached to a paper like this? Imagine you have a paper that is used for public health policy, for instance, and your name is attached to it. And the paper is really buggy, for instance. Imagine what will be the reaction of your institution. In some countries, you could get fired for publishing a paper that is wrong, that will be retracted, or the other colleagues of yours um, who don't know that you didn't contribute at all might change their point of view about your work. And so this is clearly a practice that is going on. And in your worldview, you argue that funders and institutes have a role in rooting this out, in protecting their researchers. But you also say that there is a role to play for individuals as well. And you talk about something that you do yourself every month, and it's uh, described as a digital hygiene check. And this kind of involves Googling your own name, which in your case very much isn't a vanity exercise. What, what are you doing it for? I realized that these cases involving the deception of uh, scientists could be counteracted fairly simply. As a researcher, you, you need to take care of your digital presence. They call it in the business industry. So you, you appear on web pages Maybe without knowing, your name might appear in the webpage of a fake conference to give the impression that they are supported by scholars around the world. And you need to know about that because that might harm your reputation. And how to see a paper popping up? Simply you go and Google your name or you go to Google Scholar or Dimensions, the academic search engine, and the idea is to turn on the notifications so that anytime these software index papers bearing your name, you'll be notified. And if it captured a non-paper of yours, something that you are not aware of, you have to react. You shouldn't wait until dozens of papers bearing your name are published to realize that something is happening. Has anything ever come up with your name on it that you weren't aware of? With my name on it, nothing really serious. But there is a positive outcome of doing it. 
when you turn on the notifications, you can see the researchers who will cite you formally, but you can also look at the alt metrics to know that your paper was mentioned in a blog on Wikipedia or in other places in the internet. And so you give an example of this positive aspect then on another sphere of your work, because you're also getting quite a name for yourself as a bit of a sleuth, looking for papers that have been maybe falsified, but in a very particular way, by rewording an existing paper and submitting it as a new piece of work. And the giveaways are things that you've been calling tortured phrases. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, we noticed in the published literature in the elite publishers that some papers would contain nonsense. So sometimes it's the entire paper that is uh, nonsensical. Sometimes it's only um, a paragraph with an equation that has no meaning at all. And when we looked at the nonsensical text, we could find tortured phrases in the text. What does it mean? It means that, for instance, instead of using artificial intelligence, you read counterfeit consciousness. That's crazy. And then you go to the statistics and you see P-esteem instead of P-value. So you, you understand because of the context, but you really wonder why did the authors change? So we found these tortured phrases in many publications by top publishers and we discovered that they result from the tentative to deceive plagiarism detection software by using paraphrasing software that change the words into synonyms. And that's how you have enormous data instead of big data or enormous information instead of big data. And you've been searching for these for quite a long time now and suggested maybe hundreds of papers that need to be taken a second look at. But how has the digital hygiene work and this work come together? We published a, a preprint on Archive in July and we weren't very sure that it would attract some viewers. But by doing the uh, digital hygiene, I became aware of citations and mentions outside of the academic sphere, and it gained attention. And this has led me to reprioritize my work. Now, there are options for researchers if they find themselves misattributed, either accidentally because of having the same name as someone else, or more maliciously, as you've described, and they should speak to their institutions to find out about them. But, of course, academics are very, very busy people. And there will be folk listening to this now who will be thinking, well, I haven't really got time to go ahead and do this every month to, you know, look into page six of Google to look where their name might be appearing. What would you say to them? Why is doing this important? Uh, what did happen in an institution I know in France is that researchers had been deceived because their names appeared in uh, dozens of papers before their institution realized that it was happening and it's really a bad situation. So they didn't spend the time to search uh, online each and every month for a couple of minutes. And now they have to deal with administrative burden. They have to deal with research integrity issues because of this bad story that is happening to them. It's a, a really difficult situation. That was Guillaume Cabernac from the University of Toulouse in France. Look out for a link to his worldview in the show notes.
Finally on the show, we're talking about COP26. This Sunday, the 26th UN Climate Change Conference begins in Glasgow, here in the UK. An estimated 20,000 people from 196 countries, including world leaders, scientists and activists, are expected to be in attendance. To find out what's on the agenda, Benjamin caught up with Nature's Jeff Tollefson, who explained the main goal of the conference. The short answer is that this conference was designed as kind of a catch-up. It's five years after the Paris Agreement was signed, and of course that committed the world to trying to halt global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees. But everybody recognized at the time that all of the pledges and commitments fell well short of that goal based on scientific modeling. So the world leaders, when they signed that treaty, they also included a provision that said every five years you have to come back and you have to reevaluate progress, you have to reevaluate pledges, and in theory you have to increase your ambition, commit to do more, until the world basically reaches this goal. So the pledges that are going to be made in Glasgow from various governments are supposed to bring the world in line with the Paris Agreement. Well, if this is the time to reevaluate Paris Agreement progress, another thing being discussed at the conference was put in motion even longer ago, and that's the financing of climate initiatives, particularly from rich countries to those less well off. Yeah, so this kind of dynamic between rich countries and poor countries, developed countries and developing countries is the way you formally think about it within the UN Climate Convention. This dates all the way back to 1992 at the Earth Summit in Rio when I think 154 governments came together. They signed an agreement that said we're going to try and stop global warming. And in that agreement, you had a phrase that was kind of coined, common but differentiated responsibilities. And basically the idea is that developed countries have a responsibility to kind of lead and do more and to help developing countries. It was never kind of exactly clear what that meant. In 2009, as part of kind of an agreement to get everybody to take action, developed countries said, we'll give you $100 billion a year in climate finance. That was supposed to arrive by 2020. What that means is, of course, unclear. Everybody's got their own definitions. A lot of this money is actually coming in the form of loans when developing countries want it in the form of grants. And of course, even by their own accounting standards, the developed countries are not meeting that goal. So this has always been a tricky negotiating point, and we're going to see it come up again in Glasgow. And what can people expect from COP26 then? Like, if we think back to Paris, then there was this celebratory mood that that agreement was made. Like, if it's very much the devil's in the details, are we looking to see something similar at the end, an 11th hour deal? Or really, is there going to be a lot more smaller things that are announced as the conference goes on, do you think? I think the honeymoon period has definitely worn off the Paris Agreement. And now everybody's kind of taking a hard look at the number and realising that we're still not there. So depending on whose analysis you look at, if you kind of add up all the pledges, even the new ones that have been made before Glasgow, you know, we're still not at two degrees or 1.5. So what can we expect there? It's a bit unclear. In some senses, you know, a lot of the news has already happened. A lot of major emitting countries have already made their new commitments. So in theory, if everybody holds to what they've already committed to, then there aren't going to be any surprises. But I think the hope is you'll get the leaders in the room and they will all kind of do a kumbaya and everybody will agree to do a little bit more. So that would be the surprise welcome outcome, something more than we've already been told. Do you think that's likely, Jeff? I mean, there's a lot of talk in the newspapers about how leaders from different countries aren't going to be in attendance. And just today, the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was maybe less than effusive about his hopes for how well the conference was going to go. 
I think conventional wisdom would suggest that COP26 has already generated what it's going to generate for the most part. That said, when you get people together and you shine a spotlight on them, and there will be a lot of pressure coming from the media, coming from NGOs, coming from scientists, it's possible that people still have you know, some cards in their back pocket that they're going to negotiate with. And if they can talk other people into doing certain things, then maybe they'll come forward with additional commitments. But I wouldn't say that that's a likely outcome. I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, Jeff, obviously, you've been covering all things climate for a very, very long time now and been to many cops. What's the sense that you're getting from the researchers that you've spoken to ahead of time about how they're feeling about how things are going to go? There are kind of two camps. You know, you have to remember the scientists have been watching this for 30 years as well. And there's been very little progress over that time. So there is some skepticism and even cynicism, I think, within the scientific community about the ability of this process to really kind of push governments to do what needs to be done. And you have to remember that COP26 is just a meeting. All of these pledges and commitments, you know, governments have to come home, political leaders have to come home and sell them to their population. So the United States has made an ambitious pledge to cut its emissions by 50% by 2030. But if you look at the political situation here, President uh, Joe Biden is having a very hard time getting his climate agenda through the Congress. So these are the types of questions that I think allow for a certain sense of skepticism. There is one other camp, and those are the folks who look at the technology and say, you know, renewable energy has been skyrocketing in recent years. The prices are coming down and that in time, those technologies are going to win. And I think most people would perhaps believe that clean energy will kind of come out on top in the end. But again, it's always a question of time. The problem here is scale and time. We don't have time to mess around. And there's not a lot of evidence that a lot of governments are taking this as seriously as they need to be if you want to solve this problem in the next 20 years. I mean, it always seems a cliche to say, Jeff, but it seems like the hard yards are going to start the day after COP26 then maybe. Exactly. One other thing, Jeff, that I think it would be remiss not to mention, of course, is that we are still very much in the middle of a global pandemic. What sort of impact are we expecting the pandemic to have? Obviously, COP26 was delayed by one year. So that's the first impact. And some people say maybe that was not necessarily a bad thing. You know, if the world isn't ready for COP26 this year, it certainly wasn't ready last year. So governments have had more time to think, more time to plan. And that also allowed time for the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to put out its science report in August. The COP26, low-income countries in particular, and especially small island states, those countries that are really pushing for aggressive action because their livelihoods are in direct threat due to rising seas and storms and things like this, they will be using that report as a hammer to try and force more aggressive action. So all of that might be a good thing. The potential downside is we've heard a lot of reports that low-income countries are having a hard time getting their delegations there due to travel restrictions. So I think for the most part, probably the negotiating teams for most of these governments are going to be there. But oftentimes, small countries rely on NGOs, on civil society organizations, on scientists to help them negotiate this process. And a lot of those people might have a hard time coming. So there are some expectations that, broadly speaking, poor countries are going to be less well represented at the COP than they would be in most years. Whether that turns into a political issue is unclear. I mean, we'll have to see how it plays out. The danger would be that if it does become an issue, then you kind of lose credibility for the diplomatic process at this COP, which would be a bad thing. Nature's Jeff Tollefson there, talking with Benjamin Thompson. For more on what to expect from COP26, 
check out a new story that Jeff has written. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And look out for more COP26 coverage on the podcast in the next few weeks. We'll be on location speaking to scientists and letting you in on what's happening at the conference. Not only that, next week the Nature Podcast is going mobile and for the first time ever we'll be coming to you from a train. Benjamin will be on board travelling from Amsterdam to Glasgow and chatting science with some of the people heading to COP26. That's all for this week. As always, you can keep in touch with us via Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or send us an email with podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 